This morning, the sermon is entitled The Ascension. Uh, we'll be looking at that. We'll be in um, Acts chapter 1, starting in verse 6. And you can turn there in your Bibles, Acts chapter 1, uh, verse 6. And we're going to read through 11. If you have a pew Bible, it's on page 909. Uh, and we welcome you to turn there now. Uh, we're coming to the biggest holiday Christ- Christians celebrate, really, Christmas. This is a month-long celebration. Uh, Maybe more. Some people start three weeks ago decorating their houses and singing all the familiar Christmas songs. Uh, So it may be longer than than four weeks. But for us, it's these four weeks of Advent, and we're starting today. We're going to be looking at the incarnation of Christ every morning and hopefully gain some understanding of what that uh, wonderful event was. Uh, There's a movie uh, that is called The Sixth Sense. It was a few years ago, Bruce Willis was in it, and this little boy, I forgot his name, but you remember what his his famous line was, I see dead people. Now, if you've seen that movie, you know at the end of the movie, there's a plot twist, and it takes you off guard. And it it basically is a big surprise, and at the end of the movie, as, as the credits are rolling, most of us who watch that movie are like, wait a second. I need to go back. I need to go back to the beginning, right, and watch it and see all the details that I missed. Because this, this plot twist really got me, caught me off guard. So it's the same thing with studying the incarnation or the beginning of Jesus' life here on earth. And so this morning, I'd like to start at the end and see it all the way through. And then, for the next few weeks, as we look at uh, the incarnation, we can go back and see all the things that we missed. And I hope that as you read scriptures or hear scriptures related to Christmas, you sing songs about Christmas, that that the truths of the ascension, the end of the story, will become more precious to you. So we're reading in Acts chapter 1, and starting in verse 6. If you'll stand for the reading of God's word, please. This is the word of the Lord. It says, So when they had come together... To the disciples, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, It is not for you to know the times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up. And a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven, as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Amen. You may be seated. Let's take a moment to pray. God, we... We come before you looking at these words in Acts 1 and other verses that describe this amazing event, and we we pray that you would open our eyes and ears to see and hear what you want us to change us in our heart deep down and help us to apply these truths in the upcoming weeks, in our lives, the way we do our jobs, raise our kids, live our lives. We pray that you would help us to apply these truths. We pray in Christ's name, amen. Now, as a follower of Jesus Christ, um, it's important for us to understand the entire life of Jesus, right? Not just one part, but all of it. However, I think we tend to be a little bit out of balance when we consider the life of Jesus. 
we overemphasize certain parts and we kind of leave out other parts, maybe forget them, or at least talk about them infrequently. Uh, and this, this out of balance doesn't serve us well. Calvin, John Calvin, when he was thinking about the practices of the church, he suggested that we celebrate five holy days or holidays every single year as Christians. I wonder if you could guess all five. I'll tell you what they are, but just think about these. Uh, of course, first there's Christmas, then there's Good Friday, Easter, Ascension, and Pentecost. He thought it was important to really just go all over the Bible, all over Jesus' life, and not forget uh, one part of it over another. But what do we have today? Christmas is on steroids. As I mentioned, it, it lasts a long time. There's a lot of activity in our culture about this holiday. Uh, Easter takes up second place. Of course, that's a huge holiday. Uh, for Good Friday, we basically have a small concert, and half of us go to it. For Pentecost, really, we don't have much of a, of a holiday, do we? But whole denominations are called Pentecostal churches, you know. So at least it gets some kind of mention. I think the Ascension, though, gets lost. Can you tell me when Ascension Day was in 2020? It was a day called Ascension Day. It was May 23rd. Where were you? What were you doing on May 23rd? <laughs> uh, easy. You were at home. Of course, you were at home. Everybody was at home. But... Uh, May 23rd, that, you know, that, it just is something that we don't really think of too much about. Really, is there any other event in Jesus' life where we talk as little as the ascension? And yet, the ascension is essential to understand in order to fully understand the life of Christ and what it means to be a Christian. Uh, it really completes Jesus' life on earth. It, it finishes what Christmas started. And it is only by understanding the ascension of Jesus that we can fully see what is happening at Christmas. He descended in order to ascend. That was the end result. And in so doing, Jesus restored what was broken at the fall. If you think about the fall, we were with God and then we were exiled. And in the incarnation, God came to dwell with us but in the ascension, it completes that. And I'll tell you how in just a minute. But before we get too far in our discussion or thought process here, I want to point out the obvious. There's a big problem with the ascension. Uh, it, and it's for a problem is for the unbeliever and the believer alike. For the unbeliever, just imagine this, all right? Jesus is gone. He's not here anymore. And yet we tell unbelievers that he's alive. If Michael Jackson all of a sudden appeared, right, and it was alive, you and I would say, where has he been all this time? What has he been doing? I mean, can, can I see a picture of him? What does he look like? And yet we say that Jesus is alive, but he's, he's gone. He's not dead and gone like every other historical figure. He's alive and gone, you see. This is a problem it's an incredibly, or it could be an incredibly uh, significant stumbling block for those who don't believe. To, in order to believe, they have to answer the question, where is Jesus? Where did he go? For the believer, the ascension also, at first glance, is a problem. I mean, where is Jesus? I, I kind of feel a little bit abandoned by Jesus. He's not here. He's in heaven. I want to go to heaven. And he says to his disciples, where I go... You cannot. 
And so we can feel the weight of these words. Look at verse 9. It says, a cloud took Jesus out of their sight. Out of their sight. They can't see Jesus anymore. He's gone. And then down in 11, feel the weight of this. This Jesus was taken from you, taken up from you. It would be like one of your family members taken away from you, and you would miss them greatly. So are we abandoned? Are we to tell the unbelievers that he is truly alive but gone? So a poor, undeveloped understanding of the ascension really only leads to doubt and despair. Uh, But the truth is, Jesus descended in order to ascend. He had to ascend. And there's some really good things here that we can see in in connection to him having. He must ascend. First, we're going to look at a king is crowned. Then we're going to move on from a king is crowned. We're going to see a counselor comes near. And then third, we're going to see in this text and others, a witness is sent out. So let's dive in. First, we want to say that when Jesus ascended, what it means is he went straight to heaven to be crowned king. Now, look at verses 6 and 7 here. It says, so when they had come together, the disciples asked Jesus. This was on their mind. Where's the kingdom? Who's the king? Will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? You you know, we, we think you're the king. Will you do it now? And so this was on their mind as Jesus was about to ascend. But Jesus, he puts his hand up and he says, this is not for you to know this, the the times and the the seasons. And that's hard for us to hear, isn't it? It's not our place. You don't don't have clearance for this, in other words. You are not in the place that, that you have the authority or you have the responsibility or you have anything that would make it so that you would have to know this information. It puts us down a little bit. We see that Jesus rose, eventually ascended, and went to the right hand of of the Father. In Acts 7, when Stephen was stoned to death, uh, it says that he looked into heaven and he saw the glory of God, and then he saw Jesus sitting at the right hand of the Father on the throne of God. In Matthew 28, Jesus says, all authority has been given to me. And then he he ascended, and he, he becomes king. And to us, we feel the hand saying, you're not king. Now, this might rub us wrong, especially as Americans, right? When every American has a voice and every American has a vote. And a lot of us own things, own our own business, own property. We're kind of in charge of things. We want to be independent as Americans. And to say, someone to say to us that you're not in this place. I am the king over you. I'm the king that's going to rule over you. We have echoes as Americans that perhaps we'll go back to England and have another king rule over us. And that was what the revolution was really all about. We really don't trust kings. And I think that's true for most people in the world. They don't really like the sound of someone ruling over them. It scares us. The kingdom of God is not a democracy. It's not a democracy. We don't get a vote. That's hard to take, right? We think, "Uh uh-oh, now we're going back. I remember in Hamilton... This great song, You'll Be Back, he sings it. You'll be back like before. I can kind of hear it in my head. 
I will fight the fight and win the war for your love, for your praise. This is King George speaking. I didn't mention that, sorry. It's King George speaking to the colonies. I will fight the fight and win the war for your love, for your praise, and I'll love you till my dying days. And when you're gone, I'll go mad. So don't throw away this thing we had, because when push comes to shove, I will kill your friends and family to remind you of my love. <laughs> this is King George talking now. Of course, that's what we remember of kings. But Jesus is like no other king we have ever seen. Jesus is a good king. We can see this in his life as he is fully God, fully man, and he is morally perfect. Jesus is patient. He's kind. Jesus is fair. He's loving. He's true. And he's wise. We can trust this king. But he's not just these things. He's ascending. In other words, he has to leave because he is the king of kings. He's an all-powerful king. And the reason Jesus has to ascend is because there are, there are no thrones on earth that are fit for him. It's not Jerusalem. It's not the most powerful country in the, or nation in the world at the time Acts 1 was written. Rome. It also isn't today. It isn't Washington, D.C. None of these nations are too small for this King Jesus. So we must ascend to the only throne that makes him over all. So that's why he had to ascend, to become the King of Kings. And this means that he's over every nation on earth for all time. But it also doesn't just mean the big stuff. It means the small stuff, the little details in your life, he is king over those. He's king of your job and your promotion. He's king of every aspect of your life. That would be great if we can trust this king. It would be so good. We need someone who's in control, right? 2020, pandemic, political unrest, we need a good, trustworthy, all-powerful king. And we as Christians would welcome that. I want to take just a moment, and I want to let these words sort of ring in your ears a little bit. Trust the king. In COVID, trust the king. In politics, trust the king. In addiction, trust the king. Terrorist threats, Raising your kids to be wonderful Christians and the death of your mom or your dad, trust the king. In the trajectory of your career, trust the king. Your bank account, in cancer, in your unbelieving friend or family member, trust the king. In all the seasons, in all the times, in the timing of it all, trust the king. Amen. Out in the lobby, you'll see those words, King of Kings, a sparkle red. <laughs> I'll just take a moment and say, this is great. I love the decorations in our church. Just Don't you love that? Kathy Poulos and her team came and decorated it. My parents did the tree outside. Ken and Roberta, if they're watching on Facebook Live. Uh, but they did the tree and the King of Kings thing out there. It was great. But you, you walk out, you're going to see King of Kings. And that will remind you that Christmas ends with the ascension when Jesus does, in fact, become the King of Kings. 
Let's move on. Not only is this true that Jesus is the king of kings, but let's move on to the next thing that we learn in the ascension, and that is clearly that the counselor comes near. So right now, if Jesus was just the king of kings, he's on the throne in heaven, he's a far-off king. He's way up there, and we're way down here. It's kind of like the teacher of the classroom gets promoted to superintendent or principal. He, the teacher has to leave the classroom to fulfill that new higher role. Well, who's going to teach the classroom? That, it feels like the teacher left and, and was, well, Jesus left and is promoted. The, ascents, the ascension solves this problem because the very first act of this new king of kings is to send the counselor. This is something that he uh, predicted. You can hear it in the scriptures that we read this morning. The wonderful counselor, he's going to send it to us. He said it in his life many times that he will in fact be with us. Even in Matthew 28, the Great Commission, all authority has been given to me, go and make disciples, baptizing them, etc., etc. And I will be with you to the end of the day. Age, how is a man going to be with every single one of us as we go out to different places? It's impossible for a physical man to do that. So what Jesus does, his first act as King of Kings, is he sends the Holy Spirit, the Counselor. Now think about this. Christmas, people had to search for this newborn king. The shepherds had to leave their fields, and who knows where the sheep went, right? They had to go to this one stable, this one manger, and they looked for it, and they, they didn't know who it was. The wise men, the three of them, they, they, they walked and walked and searched and searched and followed a star. They had to look for this newborn king. But today, the ascension, Jesus sending the Spirit of God to us, he comes near to us. He comes to us. We don't have to search for him anymore. Mary Magdalene, when she saw the risen Lord before his ascension in John chapter 20, she clung to Jesus. That's the word that's used. She's clinging on to Jesus, holding on to him. And Jesus looks at her and says, do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended. Now that sounds like, don't touch me. Hey, let me go. I have a sacred body. This is my resurrected body, right? It's perfect. Don't make me unclean. That's not what Jesus is saying. He let Thomas touch him. He ate with the disciples. So he's not saying that. What is he saying? What, what Jesus is saying is, if you let me go, Mary, then my ascension will unleash a bomb, basically, of my presence in everyone's heart that follows me. Everyone gets the presence of God. Isn't that what you want? Don't you yearn to be intimate and close with Jesus? I mean, he's not merely a book to study. Jesus is not a, a topic that you can know lots of things about. He's more than that. He's a person. And his, his physical body's in heaven, so the Spirit makes it possible for us to be close, to have union, to have fellowship and friendship. 24 hours a day, seven days a week, always never losing his presence. Otherwise, we would only be able to access Jesus one at a time. If you kind of think about it, it's kind of like a tutor. You go to class, you hear the teaching, you read the textbook, hmm, not sure I got that. So what do you do? You go to your personal one-on-one -on -one tutor and you say, okay, this is what I read. I'm not sure I got it. Can you help me? 
And the tutor, not responsible for new content, right? But the tutor connects the dots for you and helps you. This is the role of Jesus sending the Spirit. That's the role of the Spirit in your life to help you to move forward. And this is not like the tutor analogy breaks down because the tutor isn't the teacher. And sometimes I've tutored people before. And sometimes I find myself saying, I have no idea what that teacher meant by that. I, I Honestly, I'm sorry. You gotta, I mean, I'm going to guess here. You've got to go somewhere else. Though. I don't know. But, but the Spirit is perfectly in line with Jesus, who's perfectly in line with the Father as the Trinity works together. Look at, well, you don't have to look. Hear these words from John 14. You'll turn there really quickly. <laughs> but John 14 says, uh, the, Jesus talks to Philip when he asked this question. Philip says, Lord, show us the Father. We want to see God. Show us the Father, and that will be enough for us. And Jesus says to Philip, have I, have I been with you so long that you still don't know me? Philip. And then later on in verse 16 of John 14, he says these words, I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. Listen. And you will know the Father, for he dwells with you, and he will be with you. There's the Trinity right there. And you will know the Father, God the Father, for he currently disciples, dwells with you, me, the dwelling, he made his dwelling among us, John 1.1. 1, 1. So God, you will know the Father as God dwells with you in my body. And then he will be, what does it say? He says, he will be not with you, in you, says Jesus in John 14. So they're perfectly in sync. The Trinity, the Spirit, Jesus, God the Father working together. And that's great news for us. If we're lonely, we have the presence of friendship. If we're anxious, we have the presence of comfort. If we're stressed, we have the presence of peace. If you're weak, we have the presence of power. Right there, the presence of God after the ascension. What wonderful news that is. And finally, it leads us to my last point here this morning as we look at the ascension. That is power. We hear a lot about power when the Spirit comes upon us. So let's go back. We have a king, a king of kings, and now we have a counselor who's with us, the presence of God, and helps us in every way. And this counselor is going to give us power. Hmm. If you were to hear the words for the first time in Matthew 28, go and make disciples of all the nations, if you were to hear Jesus say, you will be my witnesses, this is Acts 1, right? In all the earth, everywhere. I want you to feel the weight of that. Okay, There's a few problems with that. First of all, that's massive. I'm to make someone believe Jesus? That's, you want me to do that? It, you, you want me to do that everywhere on earth? I have to overcome language and culture to do that? I have to tell them unbelievable things? and think that they're just going to be convinced by it? I, I, I can't even make my kids brush their teeth. What do you think I'm going to be able to do with other people in other cultures about this crazy thing? It's almost like going to the moon, how complicated it was, right? It's just this massive task to do. In 1961, Kennedy said, hey, let's go to the moon by the end of the decade. Apparently, we had no computer that was portable enough to guide rockets to launch astronauts. We had no uh, spaceship. We had no space suits. Uh, we had no landing mechanism. 
we really couldn't do it. We had almost nothing prepared. We didn't even know the direction and where we were supposed to go. And it was interesting. One of the three astronauts that actually went on that, that Apollo mission to the moon, uh, Neil Armstrong and, and remember Buzz Aldrin, they, they walked on the moon. But there was a guy rotating around, orbiting around the moon. His name was Michael Collins. He never got to touch the moon. Kind of a disappointment, I guess. But he, he was worried. He was like, okay, I'm going to give them four hours, or I don't know, two days, however long, and I have to go home then. And I sure hope they come back. He's just waiting for them. Can you feel that pressure? Like, oh my gosh, are they going to make it? He said, this is a quote, there are so many things that could have gone wrong. The machinery is so compact and so complex. You can never relax. At least I could never relax. I could never say things are going well, because that would be a jinx. He said, I might think in the back of my mind those thoughts, but I would never, ever, ever say them. There's always a next link to that chain. It would have been terrible to come home alone, though. I hate to think about that. Right? How complicated was it to go to the moon? The Great Commission is more complicated than that. It is impossible for us to do this monumental task we have to say this is just try to try to hear this for the first time and i'm i'm the christian trying to convince you to believe in jesus hey there's a place called hell burns with fire forever and there's a thing called sin and you have it and because of that you're going to hell there's a man named jesus but he's really god in disguise he died on a cross for your sins and he rose from the dead and now he's alive and he lives in heaven right now And there's a sort of a spirit, mysterious maybe, and it comes into you. It gives you the presence of God. And when you die, you join Jesus in heaven forever. People are supposed to believe that. And you're the one that's supposed to tell them. It gets worse. Jesus promises (laughs) that they will make us suffer. In, In Luke 21, he says, when you go out and you share these words, they will seize you. They will persecute you. They will hand you over to synagogues. You'll be put in prison. You'll be brought before kings and governors. You'll bear testimony of me in those places. And he says in verse 17 of Luke 21, everyone will hate you because of me. So go to the moon and suffer, and many of you are going to die. Impossible task gets worse. And then there's a third thing that's even worse. It makes it worse. Men and women, we are we are weak. We're not strong in the face of adversity, in the face of suffering. We're going to fold. We're going to run away. We're going to get scared and leave. Men are weak. Let's just say men are weak. Because in the Bible, you see the disciples before the ascension, before the Spirit comes and gives them power. You see the disciples, right? Peter denied him. Judas betrayed him. Thomas doubted him. Philip interrogated him. They all fell asleep in the garden of Gethsemane. They all argued who was going to be the best in the kingdom of God. And when Jesus was killed on a cross, they all deserted him and ran away. This is weak disciples. Jesus says it. He says in the garden of Gethsemane, the, the spirit is willing, the flesh is weak. It's like Lord of the Rings when Elrond and Gandalf are talking about what to do with the ring. It's getting worse and we've got to destroy the ring. Elves can't do it. Elves are leaving. Dwarves just sit in their caves and, you know, look at their gems. And then Gandalf says, we must place our hope in men, 
Remember that line, Elrond, men. The race of men is weak, failing. And he goes on and he says, it's because of men that there is a ring in the first place. This is true of us. We know this to be true. Men are weak. Impossible task. You're going to suffer. And we are weak. And we're God's plan A. That's what the ascension shows us. So I want you to feel that tension as Jesus leaves. Now go do this thing and they're going to suffer and you're weak. And it's like, okay, this is not going to work. But what the ascension does, this first act as king is to send not just the counselor of comfort, but the spirit of power. This spirit created the world in Genesis. This spirit for the believer gives us courage, wisdom, knowledge. Faith enables miracles, gives us joy, unspeakable joy. To the people that we approach and we try to make disciples, the Spirit opens their eyes and ears, convicts them of their sins, calls them, draws them to the Father, gives them unspeakable joy upon conversion. So the Spirit is power. Now I'm going to end on this one idea. When we have power as Christians, sometimes it goes to our head. Sometimes we abuse that power. A lot of times, actually. It's tempting, isn't it? When we stand up as these powerful witnesses, and the people fall on their knees, sometimes it's tempting to take a little bit of that glory for ourselves. You can see some some of those in ministry become powerful, you know, and then they fall, and that's why. You can see it again and again and again. So it's imperative that we know what the word witness means. So I've got a little little bit of an analogy. It's the iPhone. Here's the iPhone, right? So we've got a, a witness here. This is the iPhone. It's a witness. What is it witnessing to? It's witnessing to the Internet. So if I put my phone down, where's the Internet now? It's just sort of out there, and I can't really access it, can I? But if I pick up my device, I can... I can access the internet through here. But I'm not interested in my iPhone unless it carries me to the internet. You see that? In the same way, you and I are a witness to God. And people will look at us. What do you see when you see me? If my teaching is eloquent, if I am courageous, if I'm willing to die and I love sacrificially and I just give like, like no one else and I love people... What do you see in me? I mean, you still see David Heinrichs, but really what you should do is see through me to see the God presence in me and then train your eyes to the glory of God. That's what it means to be a witness. And that's what we are. And that's what the ascension gives us. That's where Christmas is going eventually. So every time you think of Christmas, this birth, this holiday season, I want you to remember the ascension. The ascension finishes what Christmas started. It's not just about Jesus leaving. It's about him becoming the king of kings. So let's trust the king. He's our counselor. Now the spirit comes in every part of our life, sent by the king. And we can know God more intimately than ever before. And now we turn to become the witnesses that we were always designed to be, filled with the power to point others back to God's glory. That's what Christmas started. Let's pray. God, it's helpful to know the end as we now go through this Advent season and we think about the beginning. We see the glory of the incarnation 
disguised and hidden in a baby. And as we see the life of Jesus as he grows and as he teaches and heals and confronts people and does amazing miracles, even raising someone from death to life, as we see Jesus die the disgraceful death of a criminal and rise from the dead, help us to not forget the ascension. We want to trust the king. We want to know you. And we want to be faithful witnesses. To your glory, we pray to that end in Christ's name. Amen.